Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, We learned about Tom's journey from wanting to become an inventor at a young age to studying machine learning as part of his research. Tom talked about how leading the Ingenious podcast helped shape his university experience and shared his view on the role of explainability in delivering socially responsible AI. As always, we started by asking Tom to introduce himself and describe how he got where he is today. Hello, I'm Tom Bewley. I am a PhD student here at the University of Bristol. I've been at Bristol for over six years now, having come here originally back in 2014 for my undergrad. So my undergrad was in general engineering, which here at Bristol is the wonderful uh, engineering design course. And in fact, the design, the word design was kind of the reason why I came to Bristol in the first place. I was originally interested in industrial design, product design, quite um, high level non-technical things which makes it all the weirder that I'm ended up, I've ended up doing a PhD in the Faculty of Engineering Maths, which is about the most technical thing I could possibly be doing. So hopefully we'll kind of get into this, but hopefully that story kind of shows just how difficult it is to know in advance what you want to end up doing later on in your degree and later on in your uh, career as well. So yeah, that's me. Okay, and um, is that something that you've always known that you wanted to do, that you wanted to become an engineer or...? I think in a sense, but probably before I knew the word for it, this might be true of a lot of other people as well. Like I knew that I liked making stuff and practical uh, activities where I wasn't just working theoretically. To know that that was the word engineer, the word engineering kind of applied to that, that probably came later on. I think I said age five or so that I wanted to be an inventor, which to be honest is not that far off. Although inventor is I don't actually think it's a job. <laughs> it's it's like a job in kind of superhero films and things. But so yeah, in a sense, it's always been an inclination of mine to want to build. But the inclination was not necessarily because I was interested in maths and physics as such, which I think is why some people go into engineering. Mine was more more around I like design and technology. Actually, I enjoyed the process of manufacturing products myself, and engineering was a way to really understand that process. That's how I viewed it at least age kind of 17, 18. What do you think drove you towards the engineering rather than sort of more the arts or just pure product design? So that was absolutely the decision that I was thinking about when I was applying to university. I applied to both product design courses and engineering courses. And really the decision was you can kind of go from engineering to product design, but you can't really go the other way. Having qualified in a let's say slightly softer or less technical subject like product design it's difficult to then decide you're going to be an engineer but it is possible to go the other way so it was kind of hedging my bets and to be honest I'm glad I did because I ended up going off in a completely different direction um so yeah it was it was definitely a toss-up for me at the time okay so you did say that you knew that you wanted to become an inventor first and then you pursued um you know whatever subjects you did for your a-levels and at uni but uh, when you actually studied maths and physics at school, did you feel more encouraged to pursue engineering or did it sort of discourage you? So here's my kind of rags to riches story, which I quite like. I, at school, was in bottom set of maths for two years. It was, I, I tended to think that I was quite good at school, 
but definitely at everything other than maths. So that was that was the case for me in kind of year nine and year ten. Um, and I think so it wasn't a passion for maths at all. And in fact, I still have a slight fear of doing mathematics, despite the fact that it's in the title of my doctorate. So, yeah, like I was certainly interested in physics. It felt real. It felt like something that could be visualized and played around with and touched and kind of experimented with in the same sense that the things I was building in design and technology could. But a passion for maths was not something that I ever had. And it's really kind of only starting to develop now as I understand how deep it can go and how fascinating it can be. So that wasn't the driver at school, I don't think. And in fact, quite the opposite, which really just shows how mathematical ability is not innate at all. And it's very much a product of the people who teach you and the way in which you're, you're exposed to it. And when you came to university, you obviously had that transition from, you know, wanting to become a design engineer to wanting to studying uh, computer science. And how did you decide that that's what you wanted to pursue? It was quite a slow process, I think. So the first year, at least, probably two, was still spent on the assumption that I was going to go into something like product design a good thing on on the engineering design course and it, i think it's becoming increasingly the case on every engineering course is that we do placements in industry and we see what the real world is like and during that i did some product design placements i also did uh, a more standard kind of engineering placement where i was doing basically data science and data analytics and it was really during that that i realized how interesting data science is and how powerful it can be to learn how to write software and write code and it was something that had kind of done at university but it was on relatively constrained simple problems but as i came to do it in kind of more flexible real world situations it became clear that yeah in a sense like writing software or writing code is like the most pure form of problem solving to me it just feels just immensely satisfying the feedback loop from deciding how you're going to solve the problem to learning about whether it works and then trying to write a new piece of software. It's just so quick. So for someone who just likes problem solving in general, which I think a lot of engineers do, the process of coding is just kind of that on steroids. To me, it just felt like an ex like an extremely interesting way to go and, and the, the purest example of what I was kind of fundamentally interested in. Can you pinpoint a specific memory or event where you suddenly went from thinking, oh, maybe product design, maybe, maybe engineering to actually hang on. This is, I know what I want to do. So I think there was another trend that pushed me towards what I'm doing now, which is a much more wide trend than what I was doing at work, which is I'm sure everyone is aware of the fact that artificial intelligence is a huge buzzword at the moment and was a buzzword about two or three years ago when I was making this change. So. I think it was just learning and seeing in the news examples of artificial intelligence systems being built that could do things that we never, never thought that a, a computer would be able to do. So the example that maybe grabbed my attention the most and certainly grabbed a lot of headlines was a machine learning system that beat the world champion player at Go, which is an ancient Chinese board game reported to be and technically is a lot harder than chess in terms of the difficulty of becoming kind of proficient at that game. And uh, this computer was able to defeat the world champion within several days or hours worth of playing against itself. The concept to me just felt so magical that a computer could solve a problem like that that was deemed to be essentially impossible or deemed to be so impractical and also is associated with so much folklore and culture in human society. The idea that a computer could be almost so audacious as to beat us at something that we feel is so human 
that was kind of quite magical so that was an external force that was like computer science is fascinating because you can do stuff like this at the same time as learning practically that i enjoyed the process so it's kind of a dual force i think I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely very, very interesting, the things you can do with computer science. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're working on at the moment as part of your PhD? So how familiar are you guys with the concept of artificial intelligence? I feel like maybe if you just assume we know nothing. Yeah, yeah, how you would explain it to a five-year-old who asked you. Okay, so the answer might be slightly higher than, than five-year-old level, but I think the interesting thing with artificial intelligence is to realize just working out what the definition of that term means the artificial bit is kind of the easy bit like artificial means just something human made essentially so the real interesting question is what is intelligence and that's something over which people have argued for millennia really a good practical definition is being able to achieve some well-specified goal so artificial intelligence is about programming computers or facilitating computers to learn how to solve problems in general, which is an extremely high-level definition, but it is a very broad field in scope. And I think another way of viewing intelligence, perhaps, is to think about what human intelligence is. Well, it has at least two components. We have a kind of logical way of thinking about problems, like we, we plan for the future and we work out math problems, but we also have a kind of intuitive way of thinking as well we learn how to swing a cricket bat or learn how to walk and we're not really actively planning or solving any kind of logical problems at this point there's something far more innate about it and i think artificial intelligence is essentially trying to instill within computers the ability to do both of those things and the first one in terms of logical thought and reasoning is something that probably comes a lot more naturally in terms of computer programming you can kind of imagine a little bit more easily how that could work so the second part in terms of instilling intuitive thought in computers is something that's a lot conceptually, a lot less easy to imagine, but it's really what artificial intelligence is about at the moment. The current trend within artificial intelligence is towards a kind of technique called machine learning. Machine learning is about trying to essentially teach computers how to perform intuitive problem solving. So it's not through explicit coding of logical behavior. It's essentially about kind of reactive behavior. You are given a stimulus. You're told whether you have produced the correct output and then you kind of learn your behavior on the fly. So machine learning is kind of similar to human learning in that it's programming computers based on feedback, essentially. Yeah, that's a kind of general definition of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning specifically. And my problem is just one particular problem within this general sphere. So a really big issue in machine learning specifically is that you're training the computer to solve a problem. You're saying, here is the problem, try and solve it. Did you get it right or wrong? And you kind of give it a, a biscuit when it gets it right and you give it a, some kind of punishment if it gets it wrong. And then eventually it's kind of remarkable that it works, but it learns some way of solving the problem approximately. But in terms of then asking how has it solved this problem? It's actually very difficult to answer that question. A lot of machine learning these days is based on these uh, algorithms called neural networks, which you might have heard of. Um, they're kind of roughly inspired by the brain, but the mathematical operations that are going on inside a neural network are so complex and so kind of intertwined and non-linear and interacting in all kinds of complex ways that we essentially, even the best researchers in the world, have very little understanding about how they work. 
which is kind of concerning. Like at some level, they built it so they know how it works. But if you ask if you ask a machine, how does it actually know that this image is of a cat? There is no one in the world who can really answer that question for you. Which is cool at one level that computers are able to solve these problems without us having any idea how they're doing it. But if that image ceases to be an image of a cat, but is instead an image of someone's brain scan, and the decision is not whether or not it's a cat, it is whether or not this person has brain cancer, it becomes very important that we understand exactly why that diagnosis was made. So this motivates the area within machine learning called interpretable or explainable machine learning. And that's really the area that I'm working in, which is we have these very cool, very high performing machine learning systems that can kind of solve problems pretty well, but we have no idea how they work. So can we try to get to the bottom of some of their reasoning processes to work out one, how are they doing it? And two, are they doing it for the right reasons? Are they solving problems in the right ways, in ways that are robust and won't fall over if we change one tiny little thing? Um, so it becomes very important when you deploy machine learning systems in real world context. So that's the kind of problem that I'm working in. It's on explaining and understanding these very, very complicated machine learning systems. I think that's really interesting because, you know, ever since we've heard about artificial intelligence and machine learning, we've also heard about people being scared about machine learning or AI taking over the world. And how, I mean, do you think that's actually a possibility? And how could we, or how could we prepare people to be uh, more receptive of AI? So in terms of the, is it a possibility? The answer is maybe yes, but not for the reason that is kind of typically communicated in science fiction, which is that the, the they are evil in some way. The thing is, when you're training, when you're programming a computer based on training, which is the paradigm here that you're telling it whether it's right or not, you have to be absolutely sure that what you're telling it to do is actually what you want it to do. Um, so if not, which is very easy to do, you can kind of slightly reward the wrong behavior. Um, if not, you get this uh, a phenomenon called misalignment, basically. So your uh, machine learning system learns to solve some problem which is not quite the problem you had in mind. And sometimes that leads to slightly worse than expected behavior on the problem that you're talking about. But at a massive scale, when these machine learning systems become more and more powerful, that could lead to really quite dangerous behavior. So I think that's the, that's the thing that we need to be worried about with machine learning is not actively malicious robots. It's robots that think they're doing the right thing, but we've been too stupid to tell them exactly what the right thing is. And, and humans are not very good at specifying what they want in general. People are very messy in terms of the language that we use and in terms of our style of communication. So the real danger with machine learning, and I think in explainability is an important component here, is having very, very competent systems that solve the wrong problems. Um, and I think that's something to really that I wish more people kind of understood in the in the in popular culture is that it's it's not evil that we be we should be concerned about it's kind of human stupidity like the opposite of artificial intelligence is human stupidity I suppose and that really is the yeah that's the that's the, something that we need to correct for and understand in more depth and and basically make sure it doesn't influence AI as, as much as it currently is I guess what you're kind of getting at here is that in high stake situations, AI could lead to a huge amount of risk to human life or could lead to uh, really bad things going, uh, like going on. And I guess what I wanted to know is 
how important do you think explainable AI is and how, how closely linked is that to socially responsible AI? It's Yeah, it's absolutely one of, if we're going to deliver socially responsible AI, which I think is a great term for the kind of end goal here, is we want AI that is aligned with our social values. Explainability is one component of that maybe i don't know how big a component maybe i don't know a quarter 10 percent of it or something it, it's an it's an absolutely important component but not the in, the entire story so in terms of safety critical situations i think driverless vehicles is always a great case study here it kind of captures absolutely everything that's that's important a driverless vehicle that we think performs well but we have no understanding how it's navigating around the world um is a dangerous prospect so if we're going to deploy driverless vehicles in the real world and if they're based on machine learning, I think what we would need would be to package these with explanation modules, essentially. So you're sitting in your driverless vehicle and you're kind of a little bit unsure about what why it's taking a particular route or why it's deciding to sit in this lane of the motorway. You, there needs to be an ability for both an engineer and a user to have a dialogue with the system to say, Okay, what's your thought process here? Why are you why are you hogging the middle lane? Have you got good reason for it? And if not, uh, here's what I think you should do otherwise. So yeah, it's an absolute essential component of safety alongside some other things that are, that that need to be done as well. It might be difficult to explain um, without reaching such a high level, but what would you say is the best way to kind of unpack that process that AI does into a way that can be explainable? humans to to understand the process that that ai machine is doing so yeah they're the, that's the kind of big question in in the field really is how what's the best way to approach this and there's there's two important paradigms to kind of separate between one of them or one kind of school of thought really says that we should try and build ai systems quite differently to how we're doing them now so this deep learning paradigm which is has all this complexity and messy mathematics and stuff that really uh, is far away from human intuition. We need to discard that and move to systems that a human being can look at and understand straight away. So a good example of this is, is a decision tree. And this is the sort of model that you see all the time in any kind of scientific field. It's a tree structure where at any given point in the in the tree, some decision is made and any path through the tree you can kind of understand okay this decision was taken then then it decided to do this and here's the final outcome and that's something that we have a pretty good understanding of and people are quite comfortable with as a, a mode of decision making so some one school of thought is let's just try and build really really good models that are like decision trees um, the other school of thought which um, basically acknowledges that this is in a very limited way of trying to deliver intelligence and if we limit ourselves in this way we're never going to reach anything like human level intelligence like ultimately the human brain is far from a decision tree we have no idea what's going on in much of the brain but we know that really it's it's further towards the neural network side and in fact for much further beyond that in in, in that direction um, than it is to decision trees so the other school of thought is let's just accept the fact that machine learning systems are inherently extremely complex and what we need to build is kind of understandable models on top of them and i think maybe a, a good analogy is kind of so newton's laws which we all love as engineers newton's three laws we know do not actually capture the reality the physical reality of uh kind of subatomic particles and quantum physics but they're very very they're pretty simple or very simple uh, and very effective rules 
that we can use as heuristics to build anything that we would want to build in mechanical or civil engineering. So perhaps what we should be aiming for, and this is really the direction that I'm going in, is can we understand AI systems sufficiently to build a few simple rules that capture most of their behavior most of the time, but still acknowledge that ultimately we're kind of missing something. And I think that, in a sense, is a probably a more pragmatic way to go. So yeah, that's the kind of direction I'm going is, we're never going to understand it in full, but maybe we can understand 99% of it and that's good enough. If you've got a person programming, obviously they're going to have some basic things where they, for example, say, if you were, if it was to do with a car, they would say, don't hog the middle lane, which is kind of quite straightforward. But when you get to things that are perhaps more of a, a sort of moral dilemma, how do you program that? How do you even begin to program that into a computer or teach it to make the the right decision or what we consider the right decision? Well, I think they talked about explainability as being one of these components of socially responsible AI. I think machine ethics is another one of these components, which I think is a little bit different. It is related to explainability, but it's different. And this is probably harder again, or almost definitely is harder again, because we've not solved human ethics by any means. We don't really know how to behave with one another or how to act with individuals or as nation states or anything. So the real difficulty when it comes to programming machines is that we kind of have to have a single answer because the machine wants us to program an answer in. And in the absence of an ethical rule, it will it will make one up on the fly and it's probably not going to be one that we're going to be happy with. So there's been some good writing along the lines of artificial intelligence is essentially going to force our hand and force us to come to decisions about ethical rules and ethical codes as human beings. So it's almost a driver for human beings to question question our ethics in more depth. Um, I don't know what will result from that. I don't know whether as we get forced by the use of machines to have single answers around ethical questions, whether those answers will be too simplified or rushed in terms of the answers that we come to but it will certainly be interesting to see how this evolves and there's certainly lots of lots of very smart people thinking about it but i don't know yet whether it's a good thing that we're going to have to be more explicit about our ethics (laughs) so in the context of driverless vehicles for example one of those decisions to make is should a driverless vehicle in an accident scenario prioritize the people inside the vehicle over the people outside the vehicle or should it prioritize everybody equally and according to which ethical theory you subscribe to, there is a different answer to that question. And ultimately, the manufacturers of driverless vehicles will have to answer that question. There's no there's no option in the in the code to say, give up. I mean, there is an answer to tell it to flip a coin. That could be an answer. You could tell it to just guess which one, which one we'd prefer and just 50% of the time prioritize people and 50% not. That might be a reasonable answer. Who knows? But... Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that these are questions that we'll have to address kind of concerningly soon. Um, so now coming back to your university experience at the University of Bristol, can you tell us a bit more about what sort of activities you've been involved in? And I mean, we know that you're one of the founders of this podcast, Ingenious. And can you tell us a bit more about you know how you established it, how it was to get it up and running? Yeah, so I think extracurricular things are really important at uni, and I think they've definitely shaped me towards a direction that I've uh, I've gone in, which, as I've said, is very different to what I expected initially. 
with Ingenious. I think I said before that we started recording that it wasn't my idea, so I'm not going to take credit for it. Daniela, who was the president a few years ago, had had an idea to have a podcast as part of EWB, and I decided... I basically came up to her after she she talked about this and said, oh, I'd love to do this. So I think podcasts are, are in general, are a fantastic medium for communication. So I'm glad that we set this up as a society. And yeah, like I, I, it's facilitated a lot of fascinating conversations with people that you wouldn't be able to have otherwise just because you shove a microphone in their face and somehow you somehow they're prepared to speak to you. If you came up to someone on the street and asked them, all kinds of in-depth questions like this they, they definitely wouldn't uh, wouldn't be that interested in giving you any good answers but in the context of a podcast the depth of conversation that you can have with people is, is fantastic so yeah i've been involved with ingenious i've been involved with ewb in general we also did a thing a few years ago so i was involved in something in second year where we ran a little competition among the students of the university to come up with solutions to engaging the public in uh, climate change, emotional engagement in the climate change issue. And that was kind of fun running that competition. It was great to be involved with people from completely different faculties as well. I think within university, you do tend to get siloed within your faculty, and I wish that was less the case. But just hearing the problem solving techniques that a psychologist uses or a historian uses or a geographer uses or a linguist uses it's very different to the way in which an engineer thinks about a problem and it's equally valid and very very different and i think those kinds of discussions between these groups that ended up participating in our conversation from all across the university was absolutely fascinating so i absolutely enjoyed doing that and recommend getting involved in extracurricular activities that do transcend the faculty boundaries and i think there should be more taught units at university that do that as well are there any sort of groups that just thinking of someone was listening who isn't at university but would like to sort of learn more just are there any groups that they can get involved with in a kind of non-university um setting i know that engineers without borders have a lot of outreach work at schools and i imagine there are school level chapters that you can get involved with so i think engineers that borders are always a great kind of starting point for any any young person who's wanting to get interested in engineering and interested in engineering for social good and and wider societal benefit i think that's the great thing about engineers without borders it's not just engineering for the sake of making cool things it's engineering for real wider benefit so i think if someone's wanting to learn about how engineering can be used in all these different contexts around the world, it's it's certainly a great place to get started. And that sounds like a massive plug for uh, EWB, which I suppose officially is the who runs and owns this podcast. But there we are. That was a that was an independent recommendation. Another recommendation of yours I'd like is um, if there was one ingenious podcast that, episode that you listen to or recommend someone, which one would it be? Well. They're already listening to it, obviously. Um, it's <laughs> clear, clearly this one. But oh, um, I thought Rich Pankost, who we spoke to recently, was was fascinating, or relatively recently in the order of the time of the timeline. Not not given COVID, but Rich Pankost is a professor of um, geology, as the faculty he's registered in at the university, and he's been very very senior in the climate change research groups that are. Uh, based at the university and just learning from him about how world leading a lot of stuff at Bristol actually is and how much it really affects the decisions of people of 
people around the world who are very very important it's kind of heartening to hear that so many fantastic researchers in this city are having such a positive effect on such an important issue so that was great and he's just like fantastically opinionated as well and has a wonderful way of phrasing everything um i think yeah we're slightly over 30 minutes now uh should we move to the rapid fire questions okay so the way it works is that it's uh, quite straightforward questions like that you reply in a line or one word all right okay this is a fun new experiment okay so first question if you weren't an engineer what would you be doing I'm going to try and make this one sentence. That was a precursor sentence, so that doesn't count. Or, or that one either. If I made the decision age 17, it would be product design. However, if I was deciding now, it would be physics or neuroscience. And uh, next question, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? You have no idea what you want or are best at. So keep your options open. That's that's definitely true. Like when you're doing your A levels and GCSEs, you think you need to have it figured out, figured out, and you need to choose, you know, what subjects you're gonna do, which you need, you're gonna go to, and you have to stick with it. Yeah, I think that's right, and I'm very glad I did engineering design. I know Beth, you're you're on engineering design. I think general engineering courses in general are a fantastic, um, and I know on, on on yeah on more specialist courses as well, you can still change your mind, but generality is very important early on. I think. Um, okay, next question. What would you like to be famous for? So I, I have to assume that I do want to be famous in order to answer this question. I would say solving important problems whilst remaining human and grounded and not up myself. <laughs> That's definitely a good one. <laughs> and uh, next one is, how would you describe your university experience in three words? They're going to have to be three very incoherent words because that's what university is all about. It's not consistent or doesn't have a clear or obvious narrative at all. First one would definitely be uh, ridiculous. Second one would be varied, extremely varied. And I suppose empowering as well. I think just the whole package, both, both what you learn in lectures and in uh actual coursework is very important as well and it does empower you as a skilled individual to solve real problems in the world but at a university like Bristol where you've got people from all around the world with all kinds of different backgrounds and, and skill sets it's just empowering to learn that there's many other people as well who are really passionate about really important things and are totally going to go out there and, and, and solve big problems so yeah that, that would be my third word. And what's the number one misconception that you had about PhDs? So I don't feel like I fully got my head around what what this is yet. I mean, I'm a year in, but I don't fully know what I'm doing. I suppose the mis- it's not a misconception, but it's something that I haven't appreciated to quite the extent that is true, which is you can't you don't just have to solve your own problems. You have to define your own problems, and you even have to define what words to use when phrasing your own problems. So the kind of bedrock that you live on when at university in terms of at least knowing what the problem is that kind of comes from under you and everything is quite free floating and completely up to you in terms of the direction that you that you go in so i think that's like really exciting that all these foundations are pulled out from under you and that you set your own direction but it's also very challenging and difficult from the perspective of motivation and i suppose self-confidence as well at times it's very difficult when you don't have any objective bar to measure yourself against 
to know whether you're doing the right thing. That's the importance of good supervisors, and I'm glad that I, I have great supervisors as well. But um, for someone who's considering do, doing a PhD, you absolutely have to be prepared to live in a world where you're very uncertain about yourself and whether you're taking the right direction. That's absolutely the driver of excitement, but it's also the driver of a lot of kind of uncertainty, uh, yeah, uncertainty and, and I suppose anxiety as well at, uh, at times. So you kind of got to be prepared for that. What is the most complicated AI concept that you had to wrap your head around at university? I'm not sure I can name one, but as a general rule, the complexity does not come from the, the, the framing of AI itself. I think the more you learn about AI, the more you learn that it's based in statistics and pure mathematics, really. So learning about uh, deep learning, if you're going to really learn about it in depth, you have to understand some quite fundamental statistical theories and then it gets quite deep and quite daunting. You might start thinking that you're about to learn something quite glamorous in AI, but in terms of learning in depth, you end up going into quite fundamental statistics and quite hardcore mathematics. So the hard thing to learn is is the fact that it's all just maths, I suppose. That's a hard thing to learn in terms of your feeling of mysticism about the subject, is <laughs> that everything's just maths. So uh, now final question, it's broken down into three parts. And the question is, you have to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the following words. And the first one is renewable energy. Success. Good one. Uh, MATLAB. Underrated. Okay, interesting. Okay, and the last one is futuristic. That's tough. Whenever whenever anyone imagines something futuristic, they always imagine jetpacks. And I think jetpacks are a great example of something that's just like the archetypal futuristic thing that's completely futile maybe the word futuristic is just like <laughs> i don't know like what the, the, the uh trying to solve problems just because they sound exciting and futuristic doesn't necessarily uh lead you anywhere important so maybe futuristic should be responded with with the word pragmatic or problem solving because that's what engineers are really about it's not necessarily about building the future per se it's about solving the problems of of uh, the present can't believe i ne- negotiated that into an actual answer that, that was a very well thought answer actually <laughs> to think of that on the spot like that yeah <laughs> that was really good i think that's everything from me do you have anything that you want to talk about Tom? yeah one thing that i was we mentioned matlab and how it's not necessarily for everyone. One thing that I would actually try to stress, and I think is important, is the importance of, as an engineer, starting to become comfortable with coding. As I've gone through my engineering degree and I've kind of got more towards computer science, I've realized how absolutely fundamental it is for problem solving, like the ability to think in a computational way. Increasingly, as an engineer, it's just going to be the way in which we solve problems as engineers. So I kind of hope that by the end of everyone's engineering degrees, they at least have a an appreciation for how like fundamental computer programming is. So, do you believe it's um, like a skill that should be taught as young as primary school, even secondary school, like just that computational way of thinking through problems? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So I was listening to another podcast recently where the interviewee was saying exactly that what should be taught to people in every discipline is computational thinking about how to like specify your problem and how to get a computer to help you solve it it's not about learning python or matlab specifically that's just one language of communicating with a computer but what i think is absolutely fundamental is learning how to think computationally like you say so yeah i think that should be taught as early on as possible not at the expense of everything else because 
thinking computationally sacrifices other modes of thinking that are that are very important as well but yeah i think it's very important that everyone is kind of at least proficient with how that works okay well thank you for talking to us today tom it was really nice having you cheers yeah thank you very much cheers thank you if you enjoyed this week's episode of ingenious please subscribe and share the podcast with friends we'd also love to hear your feedback to get in touch or find out more about us and our guests head to ingeniouspod.org music for our episodes is kindly provided by yemzo katana check him out on the soundcloud